What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. The case being discussed in the next couple of episodes of Sworn was an emotional case. It was a horrific case. It was a highly publicized and emotional case. But the purpose of this podcast is not to relitigate guilt or innocence And nothing that I say should be interpreted as an expression of my opinion about the guilt or innocence of anybody. Neither I nor this podcast is intended to relitigate the issues at trial. The jury has spoken. This is about what the case looks like from the inside looking out. The case was extensively litigated by very good lawyers on both sides. A jury reached a verdict, and it's not our place to relitigate those issues. But we do want to bring you inside the case for an insider's look at the case of the state of Georgia versus Justin Ross Harris. You place your left hand on the Bay of Bible and raise your right hand and repeat after me. I do solemnly swear. We the jury find the defendant not guilty. It makes no sense. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Judge, you are the last line of reason in this case. Every one of us took an oath of office, and we're sworn to uphold the Constitution. From Tenderfoot TV in Atlanta, this is Sworn. I'm your host, Philip Holloway. After releasing the first episode of The Death of Cooper Harris, I received a very interesting and unexpected phone call. It was from Leanna Taylor, the ex-wife of Ross Harris and mother to Cooper Harris. As fate would have it, she was a listener of Sworn herself, and she asked to speak with me for the podcast. I am Leanna Taylor, and Cooper is my son. And I'm the ex-wife of Ross Harris. When this case first started, how were you made aware of your son's death? I was told by uh, detectives that came to Ross's workplace. I was not able to find my son at daycare. He wasn't there. And I was frantically trying to get in touch with Ross and was not able to. And eventually... After trying to find him at work when his cell phone wouldn't connect, got a security guard involved and a daycare worker from Cooper's daycare, and we weren't able to locate him. We knew that he had left work, and that was that was it, but we weren't able to locate exactly where he was, where Ross was, and eventually I got a phone call from an unknown number, and when I answered it, it was a detective with Cobb County basically telling me to stay where I was, that they were going to come to me. But they wouldn't tell me what was going on. They wouldn't tell me, you know, if Cooper was okay or if Ross was okay. I didn't know any details. I didn't know what had happened. 
So they came to Ross's office, which is where I was at at the time, took me into a room and basically told me what had happened. What was that like? Can you describe what you felt in that moment? It was awful. I mean, I spent about I spent about 30 minutes in this state of mind of not knowing where Cooper was and, or what was going on. And uh, I knew in my heart that something had happened. I knew that something bad had happened. And you're just kind of in this state of maybe I'm overreacting, maybe I'm thinking the worst. But a part of my brain was still working. It was still, you know, thinking, okay, Cooper should have been at daycare. Something's really, really wrong. And uh, by the time they got there, I had got myself, I was worked up on the inside, but not on the outside. I was going through all the scenarios in my head. I mean, I've seen video of myself. I appear very calm, but on the inside, I was I was very distraught. When they got there, it was it was kind of like a dream state. It was very odd experience. I felt pretty much like I was floating. It, it felt very much like you feel in a dream when it feels extremely real, but you know something really, really bad is off. It just felt very foreign, just really odd. You're knowing that something, that you're about to get told some really bad news, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to stop it, and there's nothing you can do to, to change it. It's just happening. It's almost kind of like being swept up in a, in a wave and being pulled under. I mean, you can't stop it. There's nothing you can do. It's just happening. Well, obviously, we know this case was a very high-profile case, and lots of things were speculated about and lots was made about statements and conversations that you had with your now ex-husband, particularly in the police holding cell. There was a conversation where you were heard to ask him, did you say too much? What did you mean by that? I want to be very clear in the fact that I was legitimately out of my mind. I I was so confused. I didn't show any of that on the outside, and that tends to be my personality anyway. I'm just, I'm not a very openly emotional person. I keep a lot of stuff internalized. I had a lot of thoughts running through my head, and I was very confused. I had just been told that my son had died. I had been told how he died, and I couldn't make sense of of anything, really. You know, I had Ross sitting in front of me telling me that he was going to be charged, and I couldn't reconcile that either. And when you're sitting there in a state of mind where you're really you're really not believing what's happening, you're trying to at least I was trying to figure out, okay, how what's going on? How is this happening? How are they charging him? I didn't believe that it was intentional. I believed that it was it was an accident. And that was kind of the the mindset that I had and I knew Ross, and I knew the kind of person that he was personality-wise, and I knew that he talked a lot, and I knew that he would carry on a conversation, you know, longer than needed, I guess you could say. The only thing that I could think in my head is if they're charging him with this, then he must have said something that made him look guilty in a way. And I didn't, because I didn't understand the charges at the time, I wouldn't have been able to understand it if they had clearly explained it to me, which I'm sure they did. I wasn't in a mental or emotional state to really understand what was happening. And that's the only thing that I could think. Ross said something to make him sound guilty in a way, and now they're charging him. And so that's basically what came out of my mouth. Did you say too much? And I didn't preface that statement with, anything, the thoughts in my head were going, and I just, you know, just said, well, did you say too much? And I can see where that could be seen as a suspicious statement, you know, now looking back on it and knowing the circumstances at the time. I mean, I was I was not thinking about a video camera in there. I wasn't thinking about an audio recording. I was thinking about my son being gone and my husband at the time being arrested for his murder. And that's the only thing that I was thinking about. I wasn't trying to do anything that sounded suspicious or didn't sound suspicious. I truly was just in that moment and trying to understand what was happening in that situation. I was just trying to understand what was happening in that situation. What would you have to say to the people 
who watched this case closely and who saw that recording of that conversation in the holding cell and felt like your attention was improperly focused more on your husband than on your late child. What would you say to those people? I would say that you have no idea how you're going to react in any given situation until you're in that situation. If I had been told a month before that this is going to happen to you, I would have told them that they would have had to put me in a mental institution, that there's no way I would have been able to survive it. But we have an ability, our our bodies and brains have an ability to overcome things in our lives that we never would have thought was possible. And in that situation, I'm very much a, a kind of person that I'm trying to fix what's going on right in front of me. And the only thing that was in front of me was Ross. And that was the only thing that I knew to focus on was, you know, at that time, you've got to, people have got to understand that at that time I was a, I was a wife and yes, my husband was cheating on me, but I didn't know that at the time. I'm sure my reaction would have probably been different had that been knowledge that I had at the time. I didn't have any of that knowledge. And so for all intents and purposes, I was speaking to my husband that I trusted and that I didn't feel had done this on purpose. And I'm a nurturing type of person anyway. That was just a default mode that I went into. Ross was in front of me and there, was, there wasn't there was anything that I could do for Cooper. And I don't mean that the way it maybe sounds to people, but there was nothing that I could do to help Cooper at that point. It was too late. The only thing that I could do was try to help Ross at the time. I want to fast forward just a minute to Cooper's funeral. And at the funeral, when you were giving, in essence, a eulogy, the media was there and it was, everything was was recorded. And so there was audio that was broadcast of basically you saying words to the effect that you would not bring Cooper back if you could, but that Ross was a good father and you would, you would have another child with him. People found that to be an unusual statement, and a lot of people found it to be a suspicious statement. What would you say to those people, and what did you mean by that? I can understand how that could be taken a couple of different ways. I can explain it in the way that I am a Christian, and I'm very strong in my faith, and we believe as Christians that when you die, especially children, we believe that they go immediately to heaven. And Heaven is a place of paradise. It's a place of no tears and no pain. And as a mother who is burying her child, I was trying to be unselfish. And I was still in a very strange mental state at that point. I was I was not emotionally stable. I was not mentally stable in any way. And it's not like I said anything with the intention of people taking it and picking it apart and, and trying to make something that it wasn't. But as a parent, If your child is experiencing something amazing, like heaven, that's paradise, it would be selfish for you to to pull them back from that. But I don't want that to be confused with the fact that if I could have prevented what happened to Cooper happening to Cooper, I would have prevented it. I would have prevented him that pain. I would have prevented him that suffering. I would have never chosen that for him in any way. I think that what I said was just kind of taken out of the context that I meant it in. I really don't know how to explain it other than the fact that I believe that Cooper's in heaven. I believe that he's there now. And I believe that heaven is a much better place than we live on earth and that it would be selfish of me to pull him back from that. Now, as a selfish human, because I am a selfish human, do I wish I had my son right now? Absolutely. I mean, I'm having to watch my friends who had children around the same time I had Cooper send their children off to kindergarten this year. I'll never see him do that. I'll never see him play ball. I'll never see him graduate from high school. I'll never dance with him at his wedding. Like, I'll I'll never have those experiences with him, and I want that. I wanted that with him, and I can't have that. So selfishly, I want those things, and it hurts me every single day. What was it like for you personally? What did it feel like? What was your life like when you were living under this cloud of suspicion that you ultimately were cleared from, 
but it took a while. What was that like? Well, I do want to be clear about something before I do elaborate on that, and and that's the fact that I don't I don't view myself as a victim in this case. I don't live my life with a victim mentality, but there have been some tragic and terrible things happen in my life that are just facts of my life. And sometimes when I talk about those things, people get the idea that I'm playing the victim card. That's not the case. So I just wanted to kind of clarify that before I did give details on this. It was very difficult to be in. I was simultaneously mourning the loss of my child and dealing with the fact that my husband was in jail. You know, when you have bad things happen in your life, the world doesn't stop. You think it should, but it doesn't stop. And uh, you still have responsibilities as an adult. And then finding out that, you know, not only am I having to deal with the loss of my son and the absence of my husband being in jail, now I'm a suspect. And it was very difficult to deal with. I'm an only child, my mother's only child, and I had to prepare her, who had just buried her only grandchild, I had to prepare her for me possibly getting arrested. It was a legitimate concern. I was advised to get an attorney. I got an attorney. It was probably one of the smartest things that I did in my situation. And then I had to prepare my family for my possible arrest. It was horrible because I was trying to keep it together for multiple people in my life. I was trying to be strong. I was trying to stay on my feet and prepare them for this possible next really horrible thing to happen. And I I didn't know for a while if that was going to be a reality for me. And sitting there knowing that I had absolutely nothing to do with this other than the fact that Cooper was my son. It was terrifying. At the time, I was an average 30-year-old dietitian, just, you know, mom just working and taking care of Cooper and being a wife. And within a day, everything changed. Where were you living and what were you doing to get by day to day? Ross was the breadwinner of our household. I mean, he was the full-time worker. He was the one that the majority of our income came from. He held our health insurance. I was just an as-needed employee at the time, and I had family in Tuscaloosa, and I had a position come open with the company that I was with around that time. Actually, the position was open before everything happened, and when it happened, I made the decision to move back to the Tuscaloosa area and be close to my family so that I would have that family support system, but also so that I could have full-time employment. It was... September of 2014 that I officially moved back to the Tuscaloosa area and I started working full-time towards the end of September. Like I said, the world doesn't stop moving and it was good for me actually to get back into a routine of some kind, something to keep me busy and and try to keep my mind off of things. So I just, I went back to work about 90 days after everything happened. And it was probably one of the good things that I did for myself at that time was to get back to work and just basically keep yourself busy because you can't, there was nothing about the situation that I could change. It was completely out of my control. I had zero power. And my goal was basically at the time to put one foot in front of the other and keep moving. And that's what I did. And that's honestly, that's what I do today. People always say that it gets better, that time heals those kinds of wounds, but it's just not true. It doesn't get better. You just learn to live with it. You just learn to live with the pain. That's what I did. I just learned to keep going despite what was going on in my life. Tell us about your son. I only got 22 months with him, but they were probably the best 22 months of my entire life. He had such a adventurous personality, I guess you could say. He um, he was a happy child. He was very personable. He, he wasn't scared of strangers. He wasn't scared of new people. He was just very loving towards just about anybody. We used to joke with the daycare workers. He had a lot of incident reports written up on him, and they do incident reports anytime a child gets a boo-boo at the daycare, and, and he would 
he would have very frequent falls and stuff at daycare, and we used to joke with them that he probably had one of the largest incident report files in the daycare because we would get a call several times a week that Cooper climbed on the table and bumped his head. Or, I mean, he was trying to climb on the tables in daycare before he was walking. He was just fun. I mean, he was a pretty laid-back child. We, we took a trip when he was five months old, a road trip from Atlanta, Georgia, down to Miami, Florida when he was only five months old and he was just, he was just a joy. I mean, he would get fussy, but it didn't last very long. I think about now what he would be like, and that is, he would be five now. He would have turned five on August 2nd. And I think about all the time, you know, what would he be like now? How tall would he be? You know, what would his favorite things be? What would he be enjoying? It's hard to know that I'll never know those things because I think that he would have grown into a very lovable and loving child and then into an adult. I think he would have been a very loving, caring person one day. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive Budget Beach Finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Generations Riviera Maya Resort and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Let's talk about some things that you learned about your ex-husband during the course of the investigation. Did you have any idea prior to the day Cooper died that your husband might be unfaithful? I had suspicions because of some of the problems that we'd had in our marriage prior to that. I didn't know that he had been unfaithful to me. Physically, I knew that there were some issues with pornography and there was an occasion of some sexting that I had discovered in 2010, but I didn't know that he was actually having physical affairs with multiple women. I didn't know that. Based on those issues that you were aware of, had you sought counseling or any type of marital assistance to get past those things? We did. Neither one of us were really interested in divorce. It's strange to say, but we actually had a very good marriage. We didn't fight. We didn't have problems. We co-parented very well. We got along very well. The only aspect which was very clear from the trial was intimacy issues. That's the only way I really know how to categorize it is that we had issues with intimacy, and that had been going on for several years. And so when I had the most recent discovery of him using pornography, Probably in 2012 or maybe 2013, I honestly can't remember, we did seek professional counseling from a licensed sex therapist to try to heal some of the damage that had occurred in our relationship because of the pornography addiction. I think we've been in counseling a little over a year when it happened. What was it like learning later what you learned about what really was another life that you were not aware of that your husband was living? I don't think of it in my head as another life, but I can see how people can see it that way, but I don't think about it that way in my head. The intimacy issues in our marriage that we had that were ultimately caused by his infidelity, 
to me, it was evidence of that betrayal. I just didn't know that that betrayal was there, but there was evidence of it in our lack of intimacy in our relationship. And there were signs, I guess you can say. There were signs that there was a problem. I just didn't exactly know what that problem was. Those little bits of evidence that there was a problem, they showed through. I just didn't know exactly what was causing those problems at the time. Now, hindsight is, like they say, twenty twenty. It's very easy to look back on our relationship now and say, well, that's exactly why we never could overcome the problems that we had because he was, he was engaging in multiple affairs with multiple women. You learned, I guess, from law enforcement or other sources that your husband had, in fact, been sexting with multiple women and engaging in sex acts with prostitutes. When did you learn those things? And when you did, how did you react to it? So the initial information that I got regarding his extramarital affairs was at the probable cause hearings. However, there were some things said in the probable cause hearing that I knew were not true because they involved me. And when that happened, I had a immediate distrust in the law enforcement, and I didn't necessarily believe what they were saying because I knew that they had said some things about me that was, was not true, and I didn't know where they drew the line. So at that time, I didn't know what was true, and I didn't know what wasn't true. And there were no conversations between Ross's attorney and myself about those things because of confidentiality. So I did not find out until much later the truth about some of those accusations at the time. And I would say it was probably closer to the end of 2015 before I found out exactly how extensive Ross's extramarital affairs were. And it was probably about six months after that information was given to me that I filed for divorce. Was that an easy thing to do, filing for divorce? Many people might say that you should have done it much sooner. Right. I've seen different comments from different people about that, about me doing it. They didn't like the timing of it. My job in any of this was not to please anybody. I did things on my own time and what I could cope with. I was still dealing and reeling with the fact that my son was gone. And when I got the, you know, the rest of the story and the rest of the information. So for me personally, I had to work through that. I had to, there was a lot of thinking and a lot of contemplating about, you know, each thing that I was told. It took me a while to come to terms with it, I guess you could say. I had to, I had to come around to the fact that my husband had been extremely unfaithful to me. And once I came to terms with it all, it, it was an easy decision. It wasn't a hard decision to make. Once I made that decision, it was done. I did not waver. It wasn't questioned. I mean, I can remember the day that I, I made the decision. I went into counseling one day with my therapist that I was seeing twice a month at that time. And and I didn't go in there with the intention of, you know, talking about getting a divorce. And I don't even think we really talked about it that much. But when I walked out, the decision was made and it was done. It wasn't necessarily a hard decision. It's just I had to I had to come to terms with everything that had happened in my life. I had to come to terms with basically the fact that, that my life blew up in my face. And I lost everything. I mean, I lost everything in one day. And I had to come to terms with all of that. And that's a difficult thing to come to terms with when you're 30 and your life has basically just started. So, but once I did, it wasn't a difficult decision. It was, it was hard only because when you've been married to somebody for almost a decade, and we had been dating since I was in my early 20s. I, probably, I think we started dating when I was 20 and I was 30 at the time. I mean, his family had become my family. And had been my second family for a third of my life. And it was a difficult decision to make because of those aspects. But when you looked at the facts of it, and I just couldn't, regardless of what was going to happen in the future with the trial, regardless of any of that, I could not reconcile with being deceived that severely for that long. What was it like some two years or so after the fact to have to drive to Brunswick, Georgia, to go into a courtroom full of people that you don't know and relive this? I really don't know any way to explain it other than absolutely horrible. I mean, it was a torturous experience. 
when you go through something like that in your life, that traumatic, and you get to a point where you feel like you're able to move forward, it's almost like starting your life over again. I couldn't do that until the trial was over with. I couldn't move forward in many ways until that was behind me because I knew that as soon as I got up on that stand and had to start reliving that day and that experience, that it would be a secondary traumatic experience. Everything that I said was going to be picked apart. It does not matter, you know, what my intentions have been in any of this process, situation, or these experiences that, that I've had. Every time I open my mouth, I say something that is, is taken wrong by somebody. It's not my job to please everybody. I can't please everybody. And if somebody is going to think something, then they're going to think it is. That's not my problem. I can't change that. For the most part, I didn't know, you know, what was coming next. I didn't know, you know, what they were going to do. I didn't know if they were going to try to show me pictures. I didn't know if they were going to try to show me things that I, I was not going to physically be able to be able to, to witness and see. It was scary. What happened when you walked out of the courtroom? The first day when I walked out of the courtroom, I, I basically just broke down. It was a result of me trying to hold it together for an entire eight-hour period. And when I walked off, it just all came out. I was in the company of a few people that are close to me, and uh, one of them was my attorney. And uh, he had never seen me like that. He had never seen me in that kind of state. I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't breathe. It was a good 30 minutes of just of them just basically trying to get me to start breathing again. It just all came out at one time. You reached out to me after you heard part one of this podcast. Why did you do that? I think that the main thing that really struck me was something that Chuck Boring said in the first episode about how... A lot of times, especially child victims, don't have anybody there for them at trial, and they, they don't have anybody to speak for them. And that was never my intention with Cooper to not—I was there for him during the trial, and that was never my intention in any of this is for it to appear as though I wasn't supportive of my son throughout the trial. I believe you testified that Ross ruined your life. Do you still feel that way? I mean, yeah. He's the reason why I don't have my son anymore. And the actions that he took during our marriage in being unfaithful to me, they're the reason that everything else happened. Those extramarital affairs were what made him appear and look like to be a, a very bad person. If it had just been Cooper, if it had just been losing Cooper, that would have been bad enough. I mean, that would that would have been enough to have to deal with. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And most of that was because of the things that he was doing outside of our marriage. And so I stand by that statement. He's a big part of why I hurt the way that I do today. How did you become a listener of Sworn? I travel a lot for work. I spend about eight hours in my car every week commuting to work. And it was suggested by a friend that I listen to Up and Vanished. And so I started listening to that a couple of months ago and basically binge listened to most of the episodes and eventually caught up to real time and, you know, then had to wait for the episodes to come out. That's where I found out about Thorn. And so when Thorn started up, I migrated over to that podcast and started listening to it. And I listened to the first couple of episodes and never crossed my mind that you would have an episode on Cooper. And then, you know, I, I listened to the the trailer of the next episode and and realize what it's going to be about. I actually didn't see the trailer until the day that the episode dropped, the first episode. So I very uh, cautiously listened to it. I had made somebody listen to it with me because I don't like to ever listen to things that, that involve Cooper and, and uh, our situation without support of some kind. So I had somebody listen to it with me. I was surprised at the impartiality of it. It seems with our situation, you either fall on one side or the other. And the, and the media, to begin with, was very, they didn't have any trouble falling on one side or the other. And they made no apologies for that. And any time I hear uh, anything about our, our story that is obviously trying very hard to be 
impartial and and look at both sides of it. I'm, I'm very respectful of that, and I appreciate that very much because it, it is very difficult to be on the hate side of a mob. That's basically what I've experienced for a lot of the past three years of my life is being on the hate side of a mob and not a physical mob, but a social media mob. Do you see any parallels in your stories? In listening to Up and Vanished, obviously I did listen to it in a way to, you know, have something to listen to on the way to work. And a lot of people see these true crime podcasts as a form of entertainment. And obviously that's how I viewed Up and Vanished. But I never, I never forgot the fact that these were real people, that Tara was somebody's daughter and that she was lost and they didn't know where she was for, you know, 10 plus years. And, and it's the, the pain that they experienced. I can relate to that very much. But I think the thing that really, really got me were the episodes on Marcus Harper. And, and especially after they actually made an arrest in the case, you know, after he was basically found to not be involved in her disappearance. I remember, you know, listening to those episodes and thinking, oh my gosh, I know how he feels. I know, I know what that feels like for people to think that you were complicit in something horrible happening to somebody that you loved. That's a very difficult place to be in emotionally, to know that people think that you're capable of something so horrible and that people legitimately believe it. They're not leaving that train of thought. And I just thought, man, I know, unfortunately, know how he feels. I know what that feels like. So what is your life like now, three years later? It's a pretty normal, boring kind of life. I work as a dietitian with the same company that I worked with before I left the Atlanta area. I try to find small joys in my life in the relationships that I have with my family and my friends. My perspective of things is completely different now than it was three years ago. I don't worry about little things that I used to worry about. I don't take for granted the people in my life and the people that I love. I wouldn't say I've necessarily turned into a spontaneous person. That's not my personality. But I definitely appreciate the little things in life. And I'm not going to take for granted anything ever again, probably. Because when you have your your most precious thing in your life taken from you and nothing else can compare to that. There's, you know, little arguments or uh, work difficulties in the scheme of things. They're nothing. They're not worth getting worked up over or losing any sleep over because there are way worse things that can happen in your life. I guess just overall, I'm, I'm probably a more compassionate person. I, I look at things differently, especially news stories when I see them come on the news or, or see them pop up on social media or newspapers or whatever, I'm, I think about things a little differently. I think about everybody in the, the scenarios and what they're having to go through emotionally because of, of that situation in their life. And so I think I'm overall a more compassionate person and just a more appreciative person of the little things in life. What do you say to people now that it's been publicly declared that there's no evidence to suggest that you were involved in Cooper's death? What do you say to people who did or do still think that you had something to do with Cooper's death? That is something that I've essentially had to relieve myself of and move on from because I can't change somebody's opinion. I can't change their false understanding of what happened. There's nothing that I can do to change that. But I would just urge people to withhold judgment because unless you have walked in that person's shoes, unless you've experienced the things that they have experienced, you have no idea what they're going through. You have no idea what they've been through and you have no idea the pain that can be caused to that person because of the things that you say and things that you do with just what tiny bit of information that you have about their life. I mean, It's not your life. It's not your experiences. And a lot of these people that get so obsessed with these cases, number one, they need to be thankful that it's not their situation and not their life. And number two, they honestly just need to move on. 
because nothing is happening because they are lashing out at somebody who has has been accused of something that they ultimately didn't do. And you just don't understand the emotional and mental damage that you can inflict on somebody with something as simple as, you know, sending a extremely hateful or even threatening Facebook message. It's not helpful in any way. Did you receive threats? Yes, I did. Did you receive threats of physical harm? I did. Mm-hmm. Of physical violence, yeah. Mm-hmm. How frequent was that? A few. There weren't as many as, as honestly I would have thought there would have been as bad as things got. I was not on social media at the peak of everything. We're talking probably two years out. People were still very, very angry and very accusing of, of me. Basically things like, I hope you burn in hell, you know, things, things like that, of that nature. And, and, but the most hateful one was, you know, basically threatening violence on me. That's scary. I mean, to just be an average person who has experienced this and, and for whatever reason it became national news and then to just have random people sending you hateful things, it's an odd thing to experience. I've never responded to anybody that's been hateful to me, and I won't because it's not productive and it's not going to solve anything. If somebody has an opinion, they have an opinion, and that, that is fine. I would just caution people about actually reaching out to this person that you don't know and trying to inflict further pain on them because you just don't know their situation. You don't know. I mean, you could be wrong. The information you have could be wrong, and and you're just causing further damage, regardless of what you read in this case and this situation and the, your knowledge of it going into this podcast, that Cooper was a wanted child. He was very much wanted, and he was absolutely loved and adored and cherished, and nothing will ever replace him. I mean, he was irreplaceable, and it can't be undone. I think it was rather serendipitous to have gotten that phone call from Leanna. I couldn't have asked for a more complete ending to our story on Cooper. Now we've all had the chance to actually hear from a family member and just about the closest person to this case besides Justin Ross Harris. I think what Leanna said about learning to deal with the media is true. You can't always please everyone, and in a case like this, everyone is going to have an opinion. After a tragic case like this is over, perhaps the only thing you can do is try your best to move on with your life. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. As some of you may know, there's another podcast out there that covers the Justin Ross Harris case. It's called Breakdown, and it covered the case extensively up to real time during the trial. Today, I talk with Bill Rankin, the host of Breakdown, 
and also a reporter for the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. Bill is extremely well-versed on the case, having covered it in two different mediums. He's here to talk with us about his experience during the trial, as well as being in the true crime podcast sphere in general. I'm Bill Rankin. I'm the legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I covered the case for the newspaper, and I also hosted the Breakdown podcast, which focused on the Ross Harris case in season two. I've covered courts now for more than 25 years, and I've loved it. I've covered a lot of high-profile cases. I covered the Michael Vick case, the quarterback for the Falcons, who was accused of animal cruelty. There was a very high-profile case involving the Gold Club in Atlanta with a racketeering case involving mobs, alleged connection with the mob, and prostitutes who were having sex with professional athletes. But I think the most high-profile case I'd covered before this was the Ray Lewis murder trial. He and two others were accused of killing two people shortly after Super Bowl 34 in Atlanta. And the trial here in Atlanta was followed nationwide on court TV. And But I think Ross Harris was in another realm because social media now is so pervasive and the attention on this case was unlike any I'd, any other I've ever covered. I covered the case with a very able colleague, uh, Christian Boone, and we took turns during the day. This was about a five-week trial, if I recall, and we wrote stories for the, our website throughout the day, depending on whether big news came from testimony, and there were a lot of moments that demanded us to write updates for our website. At the same time, I had to I felt like I was part of the radio and TV crew because I was I had a recorder hooked up to the sound that came out of the courtroom and I was having to monitor that to make sure I could mark the most important moments when I heard interesting testimony and goodness gracious uh, there was a lot of it when I heard somebody say something that I thought would be great on a podcast I would mark it so I could go back at night after the trial was over, and then I would go back through all that recorded testimony and try to winnow down the best sound bites that I knew I would use on the weekly podcast. It was like nothing I'd ever done before, and it it took a lot of time. It was very long days, but it was interesting. It was so new to me, and it was fun, actually. It was, it was a fascinating trial. During the jury selection, some jurors did say they had listened to Breakdown, but I think it was just the the total inundation of, of news coverage about the case on all fronts, TV, radio, newspapers, and social media. At first, when Cooper was found dead in the car, the case was already a national story. But after the probable cause hearing and news of his sexting and infidelities came out, the case just went viral. You could see sitting through jury selection in Cobb, especially before the case was moved, how so many jurors not only had fixed opinions about Harris's guilt, they it was just so clear. Many of them just despised him. I don't know if they could have gotten a fair and impartial jury in Cobb. I was pretty surprised when they moved it, but it was moved because of all the coverage, all the news coverage, not just the podcast, that's for sure. Today, you know, the defense may have had a better result. That's easy to say, obviously, because they moved to Brunswick, which is a very conservative area to be. It's not it's not a defense lawyer's preference to be trying a case. It's a prosecutor's dream, that area. So, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I think they did the right thing in trying to move it because I remember one juror, she said she would give him that she wanted him to have the death penalty when she hadn't heard a single word of testimony. That kind of described how some people thought about him. She was excused, of course, but the antipathy of him in Cobb County was ferocious. Phil, I think she referenced breakdown in context with a lot of other news media. When she moved the, the trial and she referenced breakdown, she was using that as an example of how, how closely the case was being followed by the news media. And <laughs> she was right about that. I think it's very safe to say that uh, true crime podcasts are becoming, as they become more and more popular, and they are very popular because, you know, some of these podcasts are having millions and millions of downloads. I think they're becoming very influential, and I think it's very safe to say that 
Adnan Syed's attempts for a new trial would never have received such careful scrutiny by the courts in Maryland had it not been for the attention on the case by Serial and Undisclosed, those two podcasts, and the prosecution in the Tara Grinstead case and, you know, Tiny Asilla initially ordered a sweeping gag order of, that I had never seen in my life, not only telling people to not to talk about the case, but having no access to documents, which he since eased quite a bit, but it had to be because of the popularity of the great popularity, the Up and Vanished podcast, because, you know, not many people were really covering the case, and that's, it paid such close attention to it, and that's, I think, especially people in that small area were listening, so, and the judge knew that, and I guess I would hope also that Breakdown's first season played a role in how Justin Chapman's murder case was received by the courts and prosecution long after he'd been sent to prison. You know, I did that podcast on Justin Harris many years after he'd been convicted. The drive to court in Brunswick during rush hour was a breeze. So, and, but, but I guess the bad thing was spending so much time away from my family. And I think everybody involved in the case felt that. But I think as for making the podcast, it presented a lot of challenges for me. I mean, I had to, most breakdown podcasts are made in a studio we have here in Atlanta but uh, I didn't have that down in Brunswick, so I I made a makeshift studio in my condo bedroom closet. I draped quilts over my head, and I hung clothes up and all around me, so I recorded the podcast in a little cocoon setting so I could try to have the best sound quality as I could. You know, my dad worked for the Atlanta Constitution. He died about 10 years ago. He worked for the Atlanta Constitution for 25 years. I can't not imagine what he would think you know, if he'd known I'd done that as a newspaper reporter. We also had some very interesting developments while we were in Brunswick. We had Hurricane Matthew rumble through, and the governor ordered the evacuation of the Georgia coast. I remember I left at five o'clock in the morning on the day he declared a state of emergency. And I guess by the end of the day, lines of traffic going down I-16 west were bumper to bumper. I left early enough to miss it, but that was crazy. <laughs> you know, we also had half a day because of the presidential election. And I tell everybody during the trial, uh, I saw Donald Trump get elected and the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. So it was all very interesting. Do you have any predictions about how long the appeal might take in this case or what it might look like? The first thing that happened will be the motion for new trial hearing that uh, Justin Ross Harris's lawyers have already filed, but he has a a new court-appointed attorney, Mitch Durham. But he can't proceed until the trial transcript is finished. And from what I understand, we're now nine months later, and the trial transcript is yet to be prepared. It's not unusual for lengthy murder trials to for the trial transcript to take a year or even longer. So I would think once the transcript is prepared and the motion for new trial is litigated, that could take a year, I would think. And then you would appeal to the Georgia Supreme Court after that. Again, you have to prepare the trial transcript on the hearings for the motion for new trial. I don't know how long that'll take, but the Georgia Supreme Court will hear the arguments and it takes two terms. It could take two terms of its court to decide the case. That could be another half year to nine months. So I think we're talking three years. I don't think that's unreasonable. Justice doesn't move that quickly sometimes. Well, I always tell people that you certainly don't want to put all your eggs in the appellate basket. Your best hope to win a case is at the trial court level, because if you lose, then the appeal could last a really, really long time. And if it's not a murder case and you have a much shorter sentence, Oftentimes, you've served your sentence before the appeal even begins. A motion for new trial is heard by the judge who oversaw the trial. That would be Judge Mary Staley Clark. And it happens sometimes, but I think it's extremely rare for a judge who oversaw the trial, him or herself, to order a new trial. I think they would affirm the conviction and he will have an automatic appeal to the Georgia Supreme Court. And I'm sure that's where the case will ultimately be decided. 
is there anything that you think that you might want to add that uh, you think is important about the trial from the inside looking out? I think Veronica covered it pretty well. Who's the guy, um, the TV guy who you had? That was Vinny Politan. Vinny, Vinny, I thought he said it very well. Uh, I felt the same way. I thought Harris needed to testify, even though I knew Chuck Boring would have skinned him alive. But I think the uh, jury needed to hear what he had to say. From what I would think Maddox and Carlos and Brian felt like his videotaped interview you know, the, the secretly recorded interview at the police station sufficed to that. But I, I personally, I, I would have liked to have heard what he had to say, because like I said at the podcast, there's really only one person who knows whether he did it or not, despite how strongly. Another thing about this case is just how strongly and fervently the pros- both the prosecution and the defense believe they're right. You see that in trials, you know, where the Defense will say, I know my client's innocent. The prosecution will say, no, he's guilty. But a lot of that is bluster. I don't believe this was bluster at all. I think that Maddox Kilgore thought Justin Ross Harris was absolutely innocent. He never meant to kill his son. I think Chuck Boring believed in his heart of hearts that he did. So, and like I said, there's only one person who really knows for sure, and that's Justin Ross Harris. And the jury didn't get to hear from him. And I can understand why they didn't put him on the stand. But I guess like uh, asking to move the jury to Brunswick instead of keeping it in Cobb, hindsight's twenty twenty. Maybe it would have been good for the jury to hear him explain what happened that day. Well, you know, that's one of the things that stood out to me from the very beginning of this case is how each side was seemingly 200% convinced that their side was the right side. I believe you're right. I believe the defense in their hearts believes he's innocent. And I believe that the prosecutors in their hearts believes that he's guilty of malice murder. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it had to be the jury to make up their mind. I would say I bet the jury would have loved to have heard from him on the stand. If any of them had any doubts at all, you know, seen his demeanor, heard his explanation, see his sorrow and his grief. Did it seem as though the defense strategy was really to fiercely defend the murder charges or the charges related to his death and not really focus on the overwhelming evidence that was presented regarding the the sexting allegations? My impression was that the defense basically completely admitted to all the sexting allegations and I think Maddox said in his opening statement, like I I believe he played in the last episode, he was immoral and uh, he admitted to everything. I think absolutely the defense basically laid down on the sexting and child porn charges. There was really no defense they had to combat those charges. They had it all in texts and on computers. There was no defense to it, really. I think their main focus was on the malice murder charge. They absolutely didn't believe that he meant to kill his son. Secondly, the criminal negligence charge, their argument was because he did not know Cooper was in the car when he left the car, he couldn't have been negligent. He would only been negligent if he knew Cooper was in the car when he left. Of course, the prosecution argued that he absolutely knew he was in the car, but the defense argued that this was just a tragic mistake. So he could not be guilty of murder. That was their main focus throughout the whole trial. Describe for us what the atmosphere was like when we knew there was a verdict that was about to be read and what it was like inside that courtroom. I was not surprised that the jury found him guilty of malice murder and criminal negligence just because, you know, when cases go to trial prosecution, the prosecutor usually wins. And I thought this was a pretty conservative jury, and I thought that the sensationalism about the sexting was tough to overcome from a defense perspective. But when Judge Staley handed her clerk the piece of paper and he stood up to read it, you know, you could have heard a pin drop, and the anxiety and the tension in that courtroom was palpable. There's nothing like a verdict being read. 
in court, especially after a strongly you know, litigated trial that's received national attention. So it's one of those moments I'll never forget without question. Well, we heard from the prosecution. We heard from the defense. We've heard from journalists who covered this once-in-a-lifetime trial. And we've even heard from one of the two living people most affected by this tragedy, Cooper's mom, Leanna Taylor. Now it's time for me to share with you my final thoughts. The truth is, I do have some thoughts, but I'm not sure that they're final thoughts. This case and this trial literally consumed whatever part of my life wasn't spent with my family or my law practice. I, too, was part of the media that was glued to every single part of this case from arrest to verdict. We were there for it all, gavel to gavel, working sources, planning how we were going to cover various aspects of the proceedings. Where would be the best place to set up a live shot for television? I guess I'll let you in on something of a little secret. Something many people don't know is that I was the first person subpoenaed as a witness for the defense in the case of the state of Georgia versus Justin Ross Harris. That's right. You see, the defense filed a pretrial motion seeking for the courtroom to be closed during subsequent pretrial hearings in order to protect their client from pretrial publicity while evidentiary matters were discussed. The defense felt like they needed a witness, a talking head like me, to testify that there would be extensive media coverage of all pretrial matters and that people like me would dissect every aspect of those proceedings and broadcast them to the pool of potential jurors. Of course, media lawyers, as they always do in situations like this, intervened, and ultimately, I was released from my subpoena. And that was a good thing. I didn't mind being on the news, but I certainly did not want to be the news. Now, you won't find a stronger advocate for open courts than I am, but I get why the defense did this. They were trying to protect their client. Maddox Kilgore and his team, well, they were doing their sworn duty, their duty to be zealous advocates for their client. But Maddox really didn't need me to tell the judge about pretrial publicity. She could see that with her own eyes. After all, the courtroom was packed with reporters and cameras and microphones everywhere. So she could see this with her own eyes. And by the way, she did not close the courtroom. But in all of this, the truth is that I really still cannot get my head around the idea that a father would intentionally murder his son in such a horrible way. To this very day, when I think about this case, I don't think so much about the evidence. I don't think so much about the probable cause hearing that caused so much controversy. And I don't think about the trial or even the verdict. It is true that the initial probable cause hearing against Mr. Harris made the state's case seem quite strong. And it's also true that the evidence at trial was very different, and the state's case didn't seem quite as strong by that point. In fact, I've heard from people who watched the entire trial who had not seen the probable cause hearing, and these people mostly were stunned at the verdict, at least as to the murder convictions. To most of us that follow this case closely, there was never any real doubt that Ross Harris was headed to prison. The charges against Mr. Harris that were not related to murder, those charges were factually basically indefensible. On top of that, Justin Ross Harris had a second indictment returned against him for indecent images allegedly located later on his electronic devices. If convicted of those charges in that second indictment, he was facing a lot of prison time. But in the end, when I think of this case, what I think of, well, who I think of, mostly is Cooper. The death of a child is always terrible, but the way Cooper died is something I can't really fathom, not as a person and certainly not as a father myself. My hope is that Cooper's death was not in vain. At a minimum, I hope that his death raised awareness, awareness of the dangers of leaving kids in hot cars, and I hope that his death reminds the rest of us of the dangers of risky behavior and unhealthy addictions. I hope that Leanna and others who knew and loved Cooper can find some peace and hopefully, eventually, some closure. Finally, I hope that Cooper rests in peace. 
if you have kids, give them an extra hug today in memory of Cooper Harris. Produced by Tenderfoot TV in Atlanta. Story, production, and sound design by Payne Lindsay. Executive producers Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. And if you haven't yet, please check out our sister podcast, Up and Vanished, that follows the investigation into the disappearance of Georgia high school teacher and beauty queen Tara Grinstead. Up and Vanished is available now on Apple Podcasts. Sworn is mixed and mastered by Resonate Recordings. If you're in the market for podcast production, go to ResonateRecordings.com to get your first episode produced for free. If you haven't already, please head over to iTunes now to subscribe, rate, and review Sworn. And make sure you check us out online at SwornPodcast.com. And follow us on social media at Sworn Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow me, your host, Philip Holloway, at Phil Holloway ESQ on Twitter. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. What if we told you about a major breakthrough on awesome savings on all-inclusive beach vacays? OMG, this could break the case. Case? I'm talking about CheapCaribbean.com. It's full of hot savings. At CheapCaribbean.com, score an extra $175 off site-wide on vacations of four nights or more now through June 3rd. Swim up bar in Punta Cana or dip your toes in the sand on the shores of Cancun. We gotta take this show on the road. Start at CheapCaribbean.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.